Hey guys, welcome back to Tennis 360, the podcast where we talk about all things tennis. My name is Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. Welcome back to the Tennis 360 podcast. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. We've got Shanghai. We've got a few women's tournaments that happened this week as well in uh, Zhengzhou and also in Hong Kong. There have been a few different tournaments at play. In Shanghai, it was Hubie Hercatch winning his second Masters, denying Root Love, who was also going for a second Masters. Absolute epic. Uh, multiple match points saved. Uh, third set tiebreaker, 10-8 in the third set breaker. And it was a really uh, fantastic, really tense match to watch. Both guys really wanted it. Uh, did you get a chance to see that one? What did you think of that? That match. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm still struggling with the time difference in LA, but I did manage to watch the highlights yeah. and catch Gil Gross's post-match analysis. So I feel like I have a good grip on what happened. <laughs> but um, ultimately, uh, interesting to get your thoughts on this, but I feel like the her catch forehand has been renewed, has a new sense of uh, excitement about it and that's been on display throughout that tournament and in particular was the difference maker in my opinion in that final versus the two of them yeah absolutely yeah i think uh i think that that is a um that was a weapon that i was very concerned about with her cash that it was really going to break down under rublev's immense power so he really pulled yeah. through his serving was almost impossible to kind of break this whole tournament and that really came into play and also i think her cash is like uh kind of fearlessness in big moments big matches finals is really kind of underrated i think that his he has this kind of like battlers uh kind of uh, he's a great battler and competitor one of the best on the tour and i think that that really helped him out to be the most to clutch out this kind of absolute tense tight kind of match um and i think that was one of the biggest like kind of differences i mean rublev was really having a hard time breaking the hurricat serve and uh yeah it came down to a third set breaker but uh it was a great win for hubie he's now seven and one in finals which is a great stat for Hubie, the one yeah. that he lost was in a Masters final. And um, yeah, Hercatch, uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised that Hercatch has now won two Masters. He's been in uh, a Masters final each of the last three years. Like these are stats yeah. that you only put to people like Tsitsipas, Medvedev, but Hercatch really doing very yeah. well. Yeah, it's been an interesting season for Hercatch, especially, you know, um, where we think about where he was this time last year, he was kind of in the same bucket as like a Hachanov in the sense of, you know, big serve, big hitting from the baseline, was expecting him to kind of kick on and really solidify a top 10 ranking. And the first half of the year didn't take shape for him in the way that he would have wanted to. And the forehand was looking almost worse than it ever has been. Um, some of the stats show that his ability to break serve has been worse than his stats were when he was outside of the top 50. So something going on with him this year, I'm not sure whether he was working on technique and changing things. And sometimes that, you know, causes you to take a couple steps back before you can take steps forward. It wasn't really until the hard court swing starting in Canada that we started to see her catch look like he was gaining some momentum, had some really close matches against Alcaraz. We then talked about him before the U.S. Open as somebody uh, coming up in the power rankings that we thought could really have a good run at the U.S. Open. Then, unfortunately, he got sick. 
uh, lost in the second or third round. And um, and so, again, the question marks kind of started coming up. And so for him to, you know, be amongst a very small group of names that does have two Masters titles and, as you say, has reached a Masters final at least once in each of the last three seasons does show that he is a top 10 caliber player and his serve is certainly something that can consistently cause huge problems. And so it's really all been about how can he figure out the forehand, which has been such a noticeable weakness in order to really um, solidify his place in the top 10. And it's hard to know whether that's a permanent fix that he's made or whether he's just had a really good week. But uh, it certainly looked like um, a changed shot for him and made all of the difference in that tie break in the end. Yeah, uh, I uh, I agree with you. I think it, it did look a bit better. I mean, it's still not the tool that Rublev has, for example, but it is yeah. like <laughs> it's uh, it's it's definitely much improved, I think. And that's uh, that's a great thing, I think, for uh, for Hubie uh, going towards this kind of faster swing where on the faster courts, I think a lot of people can really push her catch. Um, I mean, the last Masters I won was in Miami on the, which is slow place slower than Shanghai. So I felt like uh, I, it was really, it was really good that especially against a hard hitter, like Rublev, his shots really weren't breaking down. He was holding his ground. And um, I don't know. I think uh, his net play was a really good tool for him throughout the final as well. Um, he has yeah. great skills at the net, great hand skills, great volleys as well. And um, that was uh, that was really good to see from her catch uh, coming in and using the kind of talent that he has moving forward and moving through the court because I don't think he's just a server. I think that that was really uh, really good stuff from uh, from her catch. I agree, and I also think his backhand is an underrated weapon. I mean, we saw him hit a number of shots that were almost like Medvedev esque in the way that it stayed so low over the net. Um, and a guy being as tall as he is and able to move to the backhand as well as he can, I think, you know, it's it's clearly his strength from from the ground. And he was really able to use that to his advantage. It's such a reliable shot for him. And I think it's one of the underrated backhands on the tour. Um, and, and that was really on display this week, too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think the backhand is really very solid. I mean, I think. He's one of the few players that might run around the forehand and hit a backhand because he's yeah. his backhand is really <laughs> that strong of a shot. He can hit winners like off that shot. He had a few crazy winners down the line off that shot this week and really used it. Um, was very strong. I felt like Rublev um, was probably kind of hurting himself in some ways during the match because I felt like he could hit it more to the hurt catch forehand rather than the backhand. But um, yes. that's also props to Hubie. But yes, I think that that was something as well for sure. So. Uh, but yeah, it was a good final, and um, yeah, I think, uh, like I said, I think a lot of people will be surprised that Hercatch now has more Masters titles than Del Potro, than Ferrer, than Dominic Team, who uh, yeah. only has that one Indian Wells Masters, which is crazy. I mean, it, he's yeah. and Wawrinka as well. I mean, there, he, he has two Masters. That's not easy to do, and um, yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people would be surprised by seeing the Hercatch name, but. I'm glad to see it because people underrate Hubie, I think. And I think that he deserves the props of uh, getting that kind of, getting those kind of results where the, um, well, I don't know, his weapons really come on display. So I was happy to see Yeah, it. absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the Rublev question for me, I think tactically on some of those bigger points, he didn't play it quite right. He went back to his usual pattern of play, which is to pound the backhand. and 
you know, traditionally a back end usually is a player's weaker shot, but certainly not against Hubi. Um, on match point, he really pounded the backhand and, and that ultimately allowed her catch to neutralize the point and um, and kind of step into the court and force an error. But I think Rublev, uh, this one will hurt for him. Uh, obviously, he he got over the huddle of winning a Masters this year. Um, but he's he's been having some good runs. He's in and amongst it. We know that he continues to come back and work hard and and kind of really put his name up there. But this was a golden opportunity for him. So I'm sure he'll be... He'll be ruining this one, and I think he'll have some things to review in terms of of clutchness and big moments. Rublev is someone I watch on the court, and I I just want to hug him and be like, "Bro, breathe!" Like you're getting so <laughs> yeah. um, wound up, and his emotions yeah. eat him alive. And I think that that has been a barrier for him in making you know, having successful title runs, making deeper runs in the slams. It's just like the weight is so physically carried on his shoulders and you can see it. And I, I feel like that's something he needs to address and work on because, you know, ultimately skills wise, there's not much that separates these top players. It's really the mentality. And I felt like some of that was getting in the way for him this week. I, I agree. I think that the, especially in that final, I mean, people are talking about Rublev's reaction after the last point where he was uh, the, I mean, everybody could see it. He was just smacking himself yeah. with the racket and just completely yeah. um, almost like self-abuse. And it's not, um, yeah. it's not fun to exactly to watch, especially when it comes with such a nice guy, but um, yeah, I mean, it shows how much he cares. It shows the passion that he has for the, for, for the game and wanting to win. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it does get in the way he can get real negative on, uh, on himself. Uh, I mean, even against uh, Hume Bear in the quarterfinals, he, in the second set, mm -hmm. he started just yelling at the box, even though he was up a set, he was at two, two, I think of the second set. And then Hume Bear was yeah. getting some breakpoint chances was having chances to go up, but Rublev was automatically just started yelling at himself, yelling at the box. I think he's very hard on himself, yeah. puts a lot of pressure on himself. And I think that that is um, something that Rublev uh, mentally needs to work on in order to win titles like this. And uh, I would love to see him grow for himself and also for his career, because I think that that would allow him to win more titles. Um, and it's going to be hard for him, uh, for him, uh, to do that if he doesn't go over that that hurdle, especially when he plays such tight finals like against Hercatch yeah. in the final year. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. It's easier said than done as, as something to work on. But you know, when you look at the on court character of some of the best players, that isn't something that we typically associate uh with their with their behavior. And it's so consistent from Rublev to see these types of outbursts. We also saw him have an outburst yelling at some sort of photographer who may or may not have moved during a point. He was super frustrated and it's unusual because he's such a beloved guy. Uh, people from fans to, to media and press talk about how nice he is, how easy he is to work with. And then as you say, the way he treats himself on the court is such the opposite of that. And um, yeah, it's not, it's not the type of mentality that we would associate with elite high level players that are continuing to win week in week out. And it, almost looks like from the outside that it takes away some of the joy for him. Like, geez, like how do you keep coming back every week uh, with this yeah. type of attitude or treating yourself in this way? Like it's so negative. And um, 
yeah, who knows what motivates people and everybody has their own routine, but it's certainly an unusual style. And from the outside, I would I would pick that as something that's hindering his uh, ability to get things done in the big tense moments. Um, he want to play yeah. with the most clarity and freedom as possible. And it doesn't look like he's able to do that at the moment. And not exactly something you'd want to watch either. I mean, you don't want to see a player <laughs> hit himself like that at the racket. It's very negative. Yeah. And it's also yeah. like you want to go on court and just stop it. It's like it's not it, it creates it creates an atmosphere of um, I think it takes away from <laughs> I, I mean, the most important thing is the Rublev part of it. But it does take away, I think, from the fan experience just because you want to get in the way and stop that. You yeah. don't want to see a player like yeah. that. Uh, hitting himself yeah. with the racket but yeah yeah anyway that's uh, that's watch. <laughs> uh yeah well put so but yeah so it was a good window for her catch and disappointment for rublev who loses his third masters final uh yeah one yeah. title in monte carlo lost his other three uh but yeah it was a crazy tournament in general uh i mean at the <laughs> quarterfinals yeah. rublev was the only top 15 player in the quarterfinals we had dimitrov um, Jari, we had Hume Bear as well. We had Sebastian yeah. Corda in there. A lot of players below top 20 in the world. But listen, I mean, yeah. uh, Ben Shelton as well. But, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, these are players that have had really good seasons. Dimitrov, I think, is 31 and 18 on the season coming into Shanghai, which is very good. He just hasn't had the results to back it up. He keeps losing to the top, top guys throughout the whole year on yeah. all three surfaces. Um, and then yeah, Jari, who started off the season crazy, nearly beat Alcaraz, I believe, in Rio, and then won in mm-hmm. the Chile Open. Uh, constantly coming back from a set down. I, I this guy who's just been performing really well also did well against Alcaraz at Wimbledon, so he was doing well. And then also Hugo Kumber, who's a guy who's 25 years old, and nobody ever decides to talk about him, but he is very talented, and once he can mentally find a way to actually win these matches. He's, he looks about, he looks like he can play about as good as anybody on tour. I mean, at his best, he plays some crazy, crazy high level tennis, big shots from both wings and um, a lot of good all court tennis as well. I mean, Humber, the total package just can't seem to win the matches, but he, uh, he started Mm -hmm. to uh, in Shanghai. So, I mean, I, I loved, I was really interested by this tournament because I felt like it was a lot of players who have constantly been underperforming, but playing crazy. And they've, they've finally started being able to go over the line. And I think that that was, that that was really exciting. And uh, especially, I mean, can, can we talk about Dimitrov, who has been struggling and gets a win over Carlos Alcaraz um, from down a set. He was serving for the first set, then he lost it, but then he still won the match 6-2, 6-4, or 6-4, 6-2, mm-hmm. one or the other. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was definitely the upset of the tournament, and um, I was excited to see Dimitrov hitting through the back end and um, really playing confident tennis. Yeah, it certainly was a very interesting tournament. I think it's also an interesting time of year to have a Masters where some of these top players are, are feeling their legs uh, and and also feeling their mentals in terms of you know how much focus they can really bring to the court and some of those bigger names did lose early and it, it left an opportunity for some of the guys who have been knocking on the door, who have been on the fringes, but haven't been able to get past some of these top players at the bigger tournaments. And um, as tennis fans, it's refreshing to see a kind of different field and a different makeup towards the business end of these types of tournaments. So I was excited to see that. Um, as you say, I think the Dimitrov uh, Alcaraz result was 
more about Dimitrov playing really good tennis than it was about Alcaraz not playing well, in my opinion. I think Dimitrov has been having one of his best seasons in a long time uh, this year and is playing with a lot of freedom, with a lot of joy. And perhaps he has this sense of, you know, I don't know how much longer I have left on the tour and I'm just going to really, you know, enjoy it and give it give it my all. And he certainly picked up on, I guess, some of the lack of mental focus that Alcaraz has been exhibiting at moments in this season post the Wimbledon title, where there's just been that edge that's lacking a little bit. And look, can't blame him. The guy is young. He's still figuring out how to sustain that level of physical and mental concentration over a season-long period and running deep at a lot of these tournaments. And he just couldn't quite maintain that in the match versus Dimitrov. So I think all credit to to Dimitrov and how he played. And I also agree with you in terms of Umber. You know, he has had a tough go of making a comeback post-injury. He did talk about earlier this year his kind of um, mental pain he suffered with falling down the rankings and the kind of lack of self-belief that a tennis player can experience of like, can I get back up to the heights that I've been at before? And he really had a hard time and those results just weren't coming consistently. And honestly, since the start of the hard court swing, his name's been popping up a little bit more often. He's been putting more decent runs together, getting a couple back-to-back wins and kind of putting some some good runs at tournaments together. And I think, as you say, he has an all-court game. He's a lefty. He moves really well. He has good net play. He hits big ground strokes. I mean, I would certainly peg him to be somebody that's going to be inside the top 20 next year and uh, someone that could, you know, pick up a, a couple of titles. I'm not sure I would pick him just yet to to get to, you know, kind of a master's level title, but I would expect him um, to certainly get his hands on a couple trophies next season with, with the runs that he's put together more recently. And then also a good run for the two Americans in quarter and Shelton quarters had a good uh, couple of weeks making a final in Astana um, has, has had a good run here in Shanghai. And obviously Shelton took out Sinner in an epic three set match. That was so much fun to watch. And I think is what's exciting me at the moment is those names are still young names in Baron there as well. Quarter Shelton, Sinner, all under the age of 25 and having some really good battles that are super exciting to to watch and participate in as a fan. And so I think it's a really good sign for men's tennis and the future of, of you know, kind of what we have to come post the big three era. So super exciting to be able to see that at a Masters tournament level. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think uh, a lot of people don't follow tennis week in, week out. Uh, they might not even know the name Nicholas Jari or Hugo Kumber, but I think people who follow tennis closely will be like, these are players who are really good players. They just can't really put find the results that they need. Um, so I think that that is a uh, that that's something that uh, is exciting for a person who wa- follows tennis week in, week out. Like I, I agree with you, the win with Shelton over Sinner is very exciting. I thought that his Forehand was looking really good throughout the match, hitting big throughout that forehand, yeah. coming to net a lot. It was really good. Uh, good stuff from Shelton. Serve is crazy. It's going to do really good on the fast records. I'd watch out for him in Paris as well. Coming in with good momentum yeah. off the U.S. Open and uh, Labor Cup and everything else. So it's um, that's something yeah. that I'd be excited by. So um, And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been some good runs. And, uh, yeah, I also want to comment on the Alcaraz thing um, that uh, he reminds 
I don't usually like the comparisons of Nadal to Alcaraz. I try to stray, stray away from those comparisons, but I do want to make a comparison with him to Nadal in that Nadal and Alcaraz are both players that give 110%, probably more, as much, as high as that can go. Mm-hmm. They give their all week in, week out. And that's uh, when, when you do that every single week, every single title, every single point, every single match with such physical game styles, uh, it's hard to maintain it over the whole course of a season. And I feel like even though I don't want to use the words running out of gas, I do worry that Alcaraz, as he did seem to do last year, might be running out of gas towards the end of this season as well. He played even more matches coming into New York this year than he did last year by a pretty good margin. And I feel like even in New York, yeah. I felt like even though Medvedev played an absolutely remarkable performance, I felt even at times at the U.S. Open, I felt like he wasn't quite looking fully fresh or fully himself. So I mm-hmm. I do worry that Alcaraz might be running might have an issue of running out of gas as like uh, certain seasons uh, come to a close. So that's um that's something that I would uh I would I would agree with that I uh, I do have a worry about uh fatigue with Alcaraz and with him wearing down. But uh we'll see how that uh kind of uh, manifests and uh, how that plays out in Paris and then at the ATP finals with Djokovic there as well um, and center and uh, a lot of other great players. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely a question mark. I know his coach has mentioned it too in terms of talking about like, do you really have to go full throttle on a 40 love point? Can we conserve some yeah. energy there? Can we <laughs> be a little bit yeah. more uh, considerate of the longevity of this season? And you know, ultimately, I think it's a good quality that he has that mentality. I'd rather a player come to the court with that approach and try to dial it back than the other way around. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, he he didn't play the Australian Open at the start of this year. And um, he, he, you know, then played a lot, did well in the, well-ish at the French Open, obviously won Wimbledon, and then has had an absolutely insane schedule since then. And I think he'll, um, you know, he's still learning all of the surfaces. He's still early on in his uh, experience level on the tour. And I think him and his team will work out, you know, a system that allows him to perform at the highest level, uh, you know, at the book end of the season consistently. But I would agree with you. I think he is a little bit more like that. We we did often see Nadal peter out at the end of seasons and it was tough for him to kind of, overcome I guess the resilience of a Djokovic who never seems to lose his legs and so yeah something for him to think about in terms of the longevity of his career certainly something he won't want to uh, kind of have on an ongoing basis but also at the same time recognizing that that doesn't take credit away from Dimitrov and you know players lose matches and that happens and it's not always about fatigue or he played too many tournaments Sometimes the guy just played better tennis on the day and we just have to accept that for what it is. The guy is not uh, a robot and he's going to lose matches. So you can't always read too much into things because um, you just, that's that's the love of the game. Things happen. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he's so young, so he has time to figure it out over the course of a career. Um, yeah, obviously the shout out to Grigor and um, it's good that Alcaraz has challenges because that's how... You got to become the greatest of all time. Uh, no greatest of all time didn't get there without having a million challenges. And you can look at Djokovic to prove that point completely because he had to go through yeah. uh, 
honestly, through hell and back, uh, facing against the two greatest players that ever lived, aside from himself, uh, to get to that point. So he, uh, exactly. will need, will need those challenges to grow and get, and, uh, to get better. So, um, that's, uh, yeah, but that was, uh, that was Shanghai. Uh, a lot of players doing well, um, that you might not totally expect. It wasn't a center. It wasn't an Alcaraz that, like I said, people who weren't huge, who aren't huge fans of the sport following would be super excited by, but um, it's still uh, what I think for me as a tennis fan, I was excited to see some of the players who you don't always see at the ends of these events, uh, finally getting their kind of uh, credit due. So uh, that was good to see and her catch game to win. Um, and then, yeah. And then uh, we can move on to the women's events uh, where there were, there was a 500 in Zhang Zhao and a couple of two fifties Um uh, first, I can start with uh, one of the 250s in Hong Kong. Leila Fernandez uh, gets the title, um, beats Sinyakova in the final. Sinyakova, who's generally more doubles than singles inclined, but she can play well in singles as well. Um, occasionally uh, has some good wins in singles. Very talented player. Obviously, um, uh, uh, her double success makes that quite clear. But uh, yeah, Fernandez getting the win. Um, it was her first, it was her first WTA semifinal since March last year in Monterey, but it was really, uh, a really great performance, took home the whole, took home the whole title and, um, she, she had to fight. I mean, she won a few three setters in this, uh, in this event, including the final. And, um, yeah, it was good to see Fernandez finally performing. It didn't feel right that she was ranked outside the top 60 in the world. And this, uh, I, I mean, these courts were playing a bit faster as well as, um, some of the courts in China tend to play, but I mean, Fernandez was hitting a lot of winners too and figuring it out. She beat some really good players. Um, there are a lot of young players doing well in this tournament. She beat Linda Frobertova uh, in this uh, on, on route. Um, so anyway, it was it was a really good run from Layla, and I think Layla is somebody who is super likable, easy to root for, and very talented. Great mentality on the court, great passion, great fighting spirit. And I think that once you have those kind of elements and ingredients um, when you're making a player, they're going to end up having some version of success. Even if you say, Oh, well, Fernandez doesn't have the game to beat a Rabachna or this or that. You can say whatever words you want. If they have the kind of crazy ingredients that Fernandez has in terms of her mentality, in terms of her fearlessness, her passion that she has to keep improving, to keep working hard. And also the kind of crafty talent that she brings to the game they're gonna they're gonna find some success. Well, depends. It, I'm not saying she's gonna win majors. I'm not saying she's gonna reach another U.S. Open final next year. But it was good to see her finally get uh, another title. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think it's been a it's been a tough couple of years for her since that U.S. Open final. You know, I think she played with a little bit of scar tissue for the last eighteen months following that loss it can be hard when you break onto the scene have that good of a run exceed expectations and then all of a sudden you're playing week in week out against top players and it's tough to back that up and you know Raducanu has faced the same challenges and so I think with Fernandez you know watching her earlier this year again there were some moments where I just wanted to give her a hug because she looked like she was about to cry on the court in some matches and just didn't look like she was having all that much fun. I mean, even making the French Open doubles final with Townsend and losing, and she was an absolute tears after that one as well. 
And it just looks like her mental game and her confidence took such a big hit. And also, you know, when when you make a run like that to a big Grand Slam final and you're kind of an unknown player, some of that advantage is like, hey, like there's not that much film on you and people haven't quite figured how out how to play you yet. And then all of a sudden, folks have plenty of film and they know what to do against you. And I think she struggled a little bit with kind of having a plan B and C to go to during matches. And although she has had you know, kind of a great um, approach in terms of her tenacity and energy, I felt at times that had almost gotten her way because she was like getting so kind of worked up and was really struggling to kind of just do the problem solving and stay calm and kind of work her way through matches. So it was impressive to see that she did have a couple of these harder tests in this run here at this 250 in Hong Kong, she came through a couple three set matches where she did have to do that problem solving. She did have to figure some things out. I know she was also missing a couple members of her team and her box. And sometimes it is that way with players where you let them go on their own for a little bit and they can kind of figure some things out by themselves. And maybe that was a little bit what she needed this week was just some time on court kind of without the coaching box in in full presence and just kind of doing her own thing and 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 doing the problem solving so great to see her back um and and getting her third career title and hopefully she can really use that as a confidence boost moving into 2024 because as you say she certainly has the game uh and the skill set to push up and be a top 30 player top 20 player as she should be um she's also a talented doubles player and so hopefully she can have a little bit more fun and just uh Take a take a deep breath and uh, you know release some of the tension that she seems to have been playing with. Yeah, um, don't have much to add on there. I'd I'd be excited to see Fernandez uh, find her way back um, to uh, kind of her best form. She was close to reaching the top ten following uh, kind of to the September following the U.S. Open when her ranking was mm-hmm. on at a high off of those finals points at the U.S. Open. So. Um, yeah, I would. Uh, I'd be excited to see Fernandez back at her best, and hopefully that she can find uh, whatever she had um, at that U.S. Open. And uh, I, I would love to see her get back to that level because um, uh, she showed that she can play that way. And uh, I would love to see her do that again. I'm excited to see her on the clay next year as well because I think that's a place where she can perform quite well as well. Um, and then there's also a 250 in Seoul where uh, Jessica Pagula took the title against Yuan. Um, in the final, uh, Yuan's a player outside the top 100. Um, she also beat a player outside the top 100 in the semifinals, an American named Bechtis. Um, so that was a it was a really good win for Pagula, who I feel like could use a um, could use more kind of titles at the moment, build up her confidence because she is one of the best players in the world and um, has been. I mean, I think took home the title in uh, took uh, took the title in uh, Canada. I believe I'd like to say mm-hmm. it was in Canada. And uh, so it was a, um, Bagula has been, um, it should be seen as one of the top five best players in the world. And it's good to see her getting some titles. And um, her mom is actually from Korea after the match. She had a post-match interview as well, where she was mentioning as well and saying that she's been uh, feeling a lot of love from uh, a lot of fan support. Um so that's uh, that's always good to see a uh, meaningful win for uh, Jessica Pagula, who doesn't bring, doesn't hit as big as maybe Rabakna or Sabalenka, but all the same has just as much of a kind of effective game, all the same. 
So it was good to see. Yeah, uh, what absolutely. Were your thoughts I mean, yeah, I mean, I think she, like, she's a, a super consistent player. Yes, she hasn't had the results at the slams that we would like to see a number four player in the world have, but she's a late bloomer. I mean, she's 27 and she's really only been a name that's been in contention the last two, three years. I mean, we last saw her in, in Seoul career in 2019. And at that point she wasn't ranked anywhere near this inside the top 10. And so she talked about how every year she's kind of exceeding her own expectations and She's somebody that has an all-court game. It might not be this flashy, showy game that a Sabalenka or a Rabakina has, but that, you know, it kind of reminds me of like a Radvanska type of player. Somebody that's always going to, you know, cause problems, is super consistent from the baseline. She's willing to dig in and have long rallies and kind of um, has honestly showed some really good mental resilience at the bigger stages of tournaments outside of the slams. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, as you said, this one means a lot to her because her mom was adopted from Korea when she won in Canada. She was like, I feel like I'm basically Canadian because she, uh, you know, lives on the Canada border in Buffalo, New York. And so she um, seems to kind of do well with a little bit of that, like, home crowd favorite type of atmosphere, as she should. And so nice to see her get a title going into the WTA finals. She certainly deserves to be in that top five spot with the consistency she's shown throughout the year. I mean, she sees physically fit as well. Not somebody that seems to pick up a lot of injuries with the way she plays. So I'm happy to see her pick up a title. She certainly deserves it. Yeah, totally. I think um, that, yeah, Pagul has proven time. I, I mean, you also see somebody like, uh, it's very comparable to Rublev on the men's side. I mean, kind of in an obvious way where they've reached uh, a lot of major quarterfinals at this point across all the kind of surfaces, um, but yeah. that just not being able to convert that to semifinals. And you feel like if they converted to semifinals, they could even get to a final or maybe even a title, but it's uh, it's just not seeming to happen. It's happening more at the masters level than at the majors um, which is, mm-hmm. uh, it's always weird to see players perform better at the masters than the majors. I mean, actually her catch on the men's side, um, is a good example of that because he, I think has only been past the fourth round of a major once. And now he's won two masters. It's, it's kind of weird to see that, but, um, yeah. listen, tennis isn't, tennis isn't all majors. And I think that, uh, what she's doing at the, at even the 250 level, winning these titles, and then especially at the Masters level, proves that she deserves to be where she is. And um, she's constantly working hard, um, and she cares about um, cares about rising up the ranks. I think she works so hard. She's going to she's going to figure out to get a way to get past that quarterfinal stage. I mean, she got super close yeah. at Wimbledon. You would think at grass that would actually be the hardest place for her to mm-hmm. uh, actually break through to a semifinal. So I think at, maybe not at Wimbledon, but at one of the majors, she's going to uh, find a way to get to the yeah. semifinals again. I think so too. She's a super intelligent person in general. If you guys are interested in getting to know her, she writes a column for the BBC Sports uh, page. And it's always really insightful. And she's uh, she gives kind of analytical reports on some of her own matches as well, where she kind of breaks down what she's going to be working on and where she thinks she could have made improvements. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, she lost in the final in Tokyo to Kuramatova. Um, and she has really good, you know, self-awareness. And I think 
the fact that she's having this success kind of later on in her career shows that she is someone that's kind of able to be, um, you know, a little self-critical and put together a plan for herself to, to kind of figure it out. So I think sometimes when you see that level of uh, kind of intelligence brought to the game um, and ability to, to, to kind of figure things out on your own, not just from your coaching staff and outside input. So I would expect to see her break that barrier um, at some point over the next year or two because I certainly think she, you know, has a skill set to do that. It's just got to flip that, that mental switch in, in getting there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, I don't have much to add. It was a great win. Um, great win for uh, Jessica, for sure, for Pagola. And um excited to see her at the WTA finals. There isn't another 1,000 on the woman's side on the WTA up until um, the WTA finals, unlike the ATP where there is Paris, but um, it will be interesting to see her uh, play at the WTA finals. Um, and then the last one was a uh, 500 in Zhang Zhao, where it was uh, Zhang who uh, who got the win. Uh, Chinese player Zhang, um, and uh, she got the win. She beat Krachikova in the final from down a set. It was a uh, good comeback win, and also beat Zachary in the round of 16. Did you have uh, Did you have some thoughts on the on the Zhang win? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's been a little bit of a tough few weeks for Queen Wen, as she goes by her nickname. Uh, she lost her coach in Wim Fissett, who's reportedly going back to Naomi Osaka. Uh, she talked about how she kind of felt, you know, very disrespected and, and let down by Wim, who she only just started working with uh, prior to Wimbledon. They won their first um, WTA tour title together earlier this year in Palermo. And I really thought that was a partnership that was a pretty exciting one. Wim Fissett has worked with a number of top coaches, top players, sorry, who have won Grand Slams, not just Osaka, but um, Azarenka and other names in the mix as well. And when I saw that coaching announcement, I thought, aha, uh -huh, that's the coaching upgrade that this girl needs to really push on in her career. You know, she's super talented in terms of her fitness her mentality. She has a wicked serve. I mean, she's up there with some of the uh, biggest servers on the women's tour. She's still very young, great mover, and she hits with a lot of power. Just needed, you know, a little bit of fine tuning and some elements of her game, I felt, in order for her to kind of really kick on and be inside the top 15. I mean, she's inside the top 20 now. And I think, you know, she was the 2022 WTA Newcomer of the Year. And there were expectations for her this year to, to kind of push on. And so when Wim said he was leaving a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, geez, you know, who's she going to work with now? And how's that going to impact the end of her season? Is she going to kind of take a hit mentally or not? And, and she hasn't. She picked up um, a medal at the Asian Games uh, in singles. And now she's got a WTA 500 title, her second tour level title, and beating a former Grand Slam champion in Krejcikova, who's not an easy person to play against especially when you're matching up a power game versus a finesse game Krejcikova can handle all sorts of power and then you know really come to the net cause all sorts of difficulty with her slice and her approach game and she's a very intelligent player and so um you know and also Zhang playing with the pressure of uh, wanting to win a home tournament and so for Zhang to come through and she hit 10 aces in the match 30 winners I mean Fantastic. Uh, and to come from a set yeah. down as well on a final shows that she's kind of got that mental resilience and she's not letting this uh, 
this coaching change could get in her way at the moment. It'll be interesting to see uh, who she chooses to work with in 2024. And, you know, ultimately it's just a good end to her season for her. Hopefully um, she'll find it, you know, kind of a new team and, and be able to push on, but fantastic win for her. I think really well-deserved and honestly, it's, um, it's an exciting time for Chinese women's tennis. It's, I think, one of the first she's one of only the third Chinese player to win a title at a WTA 500 level or higher you know um there's been a lot of question marks over Chinese tennis in general but we're seeing huge um effort and investment from the Chinese government into tennis as a sport itself it's becoming a billion dollar industry within the country when just a few years ago we didn't even have a men's Chinese player inside the top 100 now we have two it's fantastic to see the sport growing in this region of the world. And we want to continue to see players come from all over. And, you know, we're so used to the Americans and the Europeans and the Australians, but it's, it's worth noting that there's so much effort, you know, within Asia and Africa to provide more opportunities for athletes to widen the game's reach popularity and ultimately deepen that talent pool. And she's the product of, of that at a young age already. So, exciting to to see that um and we and we just ultimately want to raise the level of competition in the game so uh, fantastic from from their side of things to have that level of investment and see the results yeah and i i really like the comments i think that um on the uh tennis is such a global sport i mean there's uh, like you said there's so many uh people invested in trying to get better resources to uh provide uh, professional tennis tournaments in places like Asia, uh, Asia and Africa, where there aren't as many. I mean, America, I think has like 11 or 12 tournaments. That's not true for any other yeah. country. And it's, uh, mm -hmm. there's in Europe as well. So, um, that's really good. And yeah, uh, as for, uh, I, I agree. I think even on the men's side, Chinese tennis is really, uh, I mean, there's a young player named Shang, who I think is like 17, 18 yeah. years old. He's playing a really exciting tennis. And then Yi Bing Wu yeah. is what, to me, one of the best, like one of the better talents on the tour, just crazy, amazing pace out of nowhere. I saw him play Medvedev at the US Open last year. I was like, this guy is unreal. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Gigi Zhang as well. Yeah. Yes, Zhang as well. Yeah. It's really picking up and uh, it's exciting. And um, yeah, and uh, Zhang on the women's side, and then uh, Zhejin uh, Zhang um, on the men's side, they were the first actually to qualify into the Paris Games next year, um, which uh, the race has already kind of begun. But yeah, first uh, kind of entries for uh, for China into the uh, Olympic Games, which is fun. Um, fun to see. But yeah, it was yeah. a good win for. It was a good win for Zhang, who's a big um, kind of pace ge generator, a great athlete, and um, just uh, all around just fireball of a player, exciting to watch, and just, um, I mean, just hits crazy shots just out of nowhere, and just that's the kind of player that you want to watch where they're just like all over the court, just hitting winners from everywhere. Like you said, 30 winners in the finals, unbelievable against a player like uh, Krajikova, who's so solid, and um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it's exciting to see. Yeah, and kind of on that point, you know, not specifically for this tournament, but as you say, there are so many tournaments in the U.S. Yes, yet when we think about, like, tennis popularity in the U.S., it doesn't even feel like it's, like, the fourth most watched sport, you know? Um, no, and no. post the Agassi and Serena era, even more so, one worries about the reach of tennis, uh, 
in the US and kind of how it's going to get some of its popularity back. And, you know, it's time for other countries to step up and maybe it's a matter of passing the baton. And ultimately, we don't want tennis as a sport to, you know, see its numbers go down or lose popularity. And so tapping into newer markets, newer audiences, expanding the reach to countries that maybe have a renewed sense of interest or, or a new sense of interest in the sport, I think is, um, is fitting given where tennis is in, uh, in the U S at the moment in terms of its popularity. So despite the fact that there are so many, uh, top players, American players, um, at the moment, especially on the men's side, it's just not gathering the same level of popularity and attraction. So it's been great to see that, you know, not just this tournament in, uh, Zhengzhou, but across the Asian swing over the last couple of weeks has been well attended and honestly very well-run tournaments and the the players have talked about that so I think um you know testament again to the investment that they've made in the sport and we can be thankful for that because we want to continue to see the sport grow and um see more talent enter in yeah uh yeah those are interesting uh um points to be made I think the biggest thing when it comes to tennis and um our kind of thoughts on where it should grow, which kind of places and areas that should go to is obviously how we can best grow the sport in general. I mean, not just in one region or this or that, but in general, how we, how best it can grow. Um, Yeah. I think one of the reasons that us has so much of it is because we have a big, just like an absolute gigantic market and money that can be and resources that can be given to tennis. So I think that's one of the big reasons that it is so big. I think that it is quite popular in America. I just don't know if it's, I think uh, actually, I remember Gil Gross talking about uh, about it. I, I just don't think it can be the the likes of baseball or basketball. So that's kind of where I would kind of stand on. I, I don't know if it can reach that point because it's so those sports are so yeah. culturally uh, intertwined into what it is to be an American sports fan. I just don't know if it would yeah. be quite a quite a reach to put tennis on that. I still think tennis is quite popular, but definitely the more we can grow globally, the, the better that it is for the, the sport as a whole to, to grow because it has more legs to stand on. So I think that that's, uh, that's something that we should definitely be looking at either way. Yeah. Yeah. Hard to go up against the money making machines of the NBA and the NFL. I think tennis is never <laughs> going to quite be able to compete with, you yeah. know, both that those leagues, uh, financial capabilities, but also the franchises and the money behind those teams you know, and, and team sport versus individual sport. That's extremely hard to compete with from an interest perspective. But I think, uh, you know, the onus on the USTA, I would love to see, um, you know, a kind of renewed marketing campaign and more brands pushing into the tennis realm and doing a better job of keeping the conversation going and keeping some eyes on tennis in the US, not just around the US Open, but around some of these other tournaments as well because they do a good job on local activations, but in terms of coverage on, you know, your ESPNs or your major sports networks, it's just not something that that we talk about enough. And I certainly think the talent and uh, especially US talent is there for it to be a part of the conversation a little bit more. I just think uh, the in general, the ATP, WTA and, and USTA specifically for, for the American players uh, could do a little bit better with their marketing efforts, but that could be a whole whole new podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah and just quickly to kind of end off uh that point yeah i think the um 
Yeah, I, th I think that yes, to have bigger kind of platforms like ESPN marketing more of the uh, more of the tennis um, games, or whether it be NBC or ABC, or uh, that that would be only good to grow the sport for, uh, forward in uh, in the United States. So hopefully, we can see that kind of thing happening and see see the marketing be better and not just uh, kind of point to kind of. As good as I think drama is to sell tennis, I think there's other exciting parts of tennis that we can be marketing and exciting U.S. players to point to. But anyway, like you said, that's a whole can of worms that we can open for another podcast, <laughs> I think. All right. And now for the uh, kind of power rankings uh, segment of the podcast. Um, so uh, this is uh, based off of Shanghai and also the other kind of women's tournaments that went on, the two 250s and also the 500 event, which uh, Zhang won over Krajikova. And uh, these are kind of... The uh, these are the power rankings. Let's see what kind of the uh, the big differences are. Well, obviously, Zhang um, climbed up into both of our power rankings. I have at, her at eight. Um, you you have her at ten, but I feel like she has to climb up. She's been performing absolutely great since the grass swing. Um, very like the the win percentage for her season before the grass swing to after the grass swing is very big. Uh, very big disparity. So um, it's uh, Jane climbed into the power rankings. And then uh, also I had Dimitrov climb in um, as well with a big win over Alcraz. Then semifinals, Shanghai losing to Rublev in the semis. Uh, Rublev climbs up. But yeah, just a few changes. Nothing huge on the men's side at the top because, listen, a lot of the players who did well in Shanghai, uh, they're not going to get automatically right to the top of the power rankings because they're not players who have been uh, performing super amazing week in, week out, not getting to a lot of semifinals or finals, but um, a few changes here or there. Um, if you want to touch about uh, touch upon it, uh, some of the changes that you had in your power rankings as well. Yeah, so I had a little bit more movement on the ATP side than I did on the WTA side. For folks wondering, I still don't have Djokovic in my list just because I haven't seen him play since the US Open, and I wanted to give a nod to a couple players who, who have been more active. I pushed Shelton up a little bit because I felt like he's performing well on the big stage. Again, kind of one of his first Asian swings of his career and seems to be handling things really well post-US Open. And he's such a threat on a hard core, especially a fast hard core. And I've just really been enjoying watching him play. So uh, that's why he's moved up a couple spots for me, obviously adding Dimitrov to the list. Um, and then I'm curious to ask you because Vera fell down a couple spots for me. Um, he... Lost in the early rounds here in Shanghai. And then he also lost in the first round this week uh, in Tokyo, which just started today. Uh, he lost to Jordan Thompson. And, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Zverev being back, Zverev being inside the top 10. He's making a full recovery post that horrific injury. He picked up a title. He made a good run at the US Open. I mean, he's... he. Um, seem to really be like going a little nuts with his scheduling, maybe in an effort to try to qualify for the ATP finals. And I felt like uh, I was concerned that he might start to lose or lack some energy as a result of all of the matches he's been playing and the long matches and the traveling. And I feel like that's what we're seeing now. Um, but I still would pick him as somebody who is a name to watch out for at the Paris Masters. Maybe he's sort of had the entry list for Tokyo. I'm, I'm not sure kind of what to think exactly, but it looks like you've lost him inside your top 10. So curious what you're feeling about him. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he deserved a nod to stay in, but my thoughts were that he did just lose first round to Jordan Thompson, which is not a good win for Zverev. I felt like last week he lost pretty comfortably. And even though he has been on terror, even his loss to Medvedev, he wasn't looking as, I don't know, the kind of big game that he was looking like he was promising to bring uh, starting from around Cincinnati up to um, kind of the U.S. Open and a couple of events after that, winning also a title, I believe, in Zhuhai. Or was it Kachana mm-hmm. from Zhuhai? One of, yeah, one of those, uh, the titles that week. So uh, he, he is playing a good ball. I just, I, I'm kind of putting him out expecting him to jump back in. Uh, so we'll see okay. how he does over the next couple of weeks. But yeah, just because he's been losing early rounds, I just I decided to give a nod to some of these other players that performed well in Shanghai, but I mean, just as easily could have put him in. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question uh, because uh, he has, uh, he definitely is probably the fifth, sixth, uh, at most seventh best player of the year. Um, and uh, he's playing a very good ball. So uh, up until the last couple of weeks, um, but yeah, and then, uh, what else? I had Krajikova jump into my top 10. I feel like she's p- finally mm-hmm. playing a better ball and that's, I, I'm kind of putting her in with the kind of, uh, I don't know, promise of hoping that she just keeps improving upon that. Cause I know how well she can play at her best. So, um, I just, yeah. I felt like she deserved the nod to, to be in the top 10. Cause if I see her in the draw for the next few weeks, I'm like, okay, well, that's a player who I would not want to see on, on the, uh, on the other side. Um, uh, the uh, as my opponent so uh yeah, yeah absolutely were... yeah she yeah. had a good so, run in san diego picked up a title there i noticed uh she may have taken your spot for jabor which would be fair i think jabor again has had a little bit of a on again off again season and she pulled out of um the uh, wta 500 in yes. her quarterfinal match against Kazakina with a knee injury. It seems like it's the same knee that's kind of been niggling yeah. all season long. I think it was actually um, yeah, I think it was actually the second round, round 16 match, I think. I think okay, right. yeah. Um, either way, uh, you know, she again, she kind of tried to pack her schedule a little bit to qualify for the WTA finals. Now that she has qualified, perhaps again there's things of, you know, do, how much do I want to push it? She definitely wants to play this home tournament in Tunisia she's playing that wild card in doubles with Venus Williams so maybe that was playing on her mind a little bit as well um but her form has been on again off again so I could see why you would give her you know a nod uh sorry critique of her a nod over over Jabor at the moment um I see you also uh dropped Garcia out of your top 10 Yes. Yeah. Garcia and Jabor are two players that did uh, drop out of mine. Um, yeah. Garcia uh, could have gotten the nod. She lost early to Paolini, although I do like Paolini a lot. Um, I mean, Garcia started performing well over the last two or three weeks. So that's kind of why I felt like um, a player like Krajikova, I do want, want to give the nod because I feel like it's a bit similar to Garcia, but she was the one who yeah. did reach the final this week. So I just felt like that's kind of why I decided to bring her in. And then also Mukova, who's at seven, just hasn't played since the U.S. Open. But that's kind of yeah. just a difference of whatever. I just feel like she, uh, what the next time she plays, I'm, I'll be just as excited to see how she's going to do. But yeah, a few changes in the power rankings. I don't feel like anything absolutely massive or like i like i think we have pretty much the same top three so um just a few few different changes in there but uh yeah yeah and then uh we can jump to the uh kind of upcoming section 
of the podcast uh, where we talk about tournaments coming up. There, there's a lot of stuff coming up. Um, there are uh, three events on the ATP side, um, which is uh, pretty exciting. There's a, a couple of 250s and a 500 in Tokyo. At the Tokyo event, Fritz will be defending. Also, Casper uh, Rude is playing. Zverev is playing. Also, Demonor, Paul, um, with the race still on, people trying to get to the top eight in the race, um, trying to take over spots. Zverev at seventh, Tsitsipas is at sixth. Um, Rublev at fifth is going to be a hard hard call to get over, I think, but uh, Rune at eighth might yeah. be pretty vulnerable. So, uh, and Rune, uh, Paul and Demon, Paul and Demon, I feel like they're going to really like their chances as the uh, end of the season kind of um, comes. Um, Paul had a good win this week. Uh, I think he was down a set, and he still managed to win. So hopefully, Paul can uh, continue some of the hardcore form that he's shown. Um, but yeah, that's one of the tournaments, and then also in the other tournaments, there is a um, tournament where. Um, Tsitsipas is the uh, top seed, and then the other, Runa, is the top seed. Try to say, which uh, which were the ATP time? I'm trying to see where that is now. It's in Antwerp and Stockholm, so um, yeah. I believe. So Tsitsipas yeah. in Antwerp and Runa in Stockholm. Um, and those, listen, those are, those are good draws for uh, both of those players. I feel like um, in Stockholm, there's a bunch of dangerous players um, mm-hmm. uh, at play, like, uh, like Wawrinka, uh, Manorino just won a title. Monfils is playing. So there's some good players, but, uh, listen, if Runa and Sitzboss are on form, these are two tournaments that I expect them to win. But yeah, those are some, uh, some tournaments coming up. And then also in Tokyo, that's a big one. Herkatch is playing Tokyo. He's not even seated. He's just won a thousand <laughs> tournament in Shanghai. Yeah. It just so happens. And uh, yeah. it's a completely filled up with a couple of Americans, Paul Tiafo, like I mentioned, playing, and then um, yeah, Demonor. So it should be uh, it should be interesting to see how these uh, these tournaments fill out. I always love the Tokyo tournament. So yeah, yeah. Look, it's becoming a very interesting business end of the ATP season. Things are not wrapped up, and the door is certainly still open for qualification for a number of names. Um, and. Tsitsipas and Runa are two players that have massively come off the boil in the second half of the season. And honestly, looking at the entry list, I have question marks over their ability to win these two tournaments in Antwerp and Stockholm. Uh, first, looking at Tsitsipas, I mean, he lost uh, early rounds again in the uh, Shanghai Masters. Uh, he hasn't gotten out of the third round since... Uh, Wimbledon or even before then of a tournament I think he won a tournament yeah. post Wimbledon and then hasn't gotten out of the third round since um he won one in South America but since Los Cabos Tsitsipas hasn't had any good results hasn't gotten out of a third round at a tournament you can see the confidence is going and um our, our notes here show that he has a potential rematch against Stricker who played well against him at the U.S. Open beat him in five sets I mean that's a name uh, to watch out for in terms of a you know kind of a dangerous all-court game and then with Runa, I mean, also has a coaching change. He's not work, working with the Moritoglu group anymore, uh, or at least not specifically with Patrick anymore. He has had a nasty back injury. You know, a disc bulge, in my opinion, is something that really is a six-month injury. Some people might look at that and think it's, you know, a six-weeker, but those ones are really hard to recover from. They're often persistent, niggling injuries that, 
you feel fine one day, you don't feel fine the next. And um, they're very debilitating in terms of uh, your movement and your ability to really play with freedom. Um, and, and the pain can be pretty severe. So I have some sympathy for him in the sense that I feel like the results are tied to that injury. But at the same time, when we look at the timeline of when that happened, I don't think he's out of the woods. And so for him to put together four or five, four, you know, good solid back-to-back matches with an entry pool that, as you say, has names like Baez, Manorino, Monfils, and Vavrinka, I I wouldn't pick him to win that tournament. And so to me, those two spots that Tsitsipas and Runa hold are very much up for grabs. And then you have strange momentum shifts in a Fritz losing to Schwartzman last week, and he has 500 points to defend in Tokyo. I, I, I'm not sure his momentum sets him up as somebody who we would pick as favorite to win that tournament, especially with the other names that are in the mix and the kind of pressure that's on the line here. Um, you know, I think last year Fritz was like, had a great, you know, uh, kind of end of the season and was able without pressure to put a couple good runs together and win this Tokyo title. Whereas now it's the other way around with having to defend those points, knowing that you still have qualification to come. And I, again, I wouldn't pick him as a favorite there. He has a tough first round match against Cam Nori. Cam Nori is also a name that's fallen off in the second half of this season, strangely so. Um, but again, is somebody that has the skill set to, to beat a Fritz early on. So um, super interesting to see, you know, which of these names is going to be able to put a solid two, three weeks together here. And uh, it really could come down to kind of, the last few matches at Paris before we know um, how qualification gets wrapped up. So yeah, curious to see how this is all going to unfold. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious as well. Um, uh, yeah. Nori is a weird first round uh, Nori unseated. So he could have faced off against yeah. anybody plays the first seat. Yeah. Fritz um, Fritz has performed well in Tokyo, not just last year, but also uh, years prior to that. So Nori really hasn't looked himself since that Indian Wells, I believe, quarterfinal where he played against Tiafo, um, and uh, just really wasn't looking like himself since that. He hasn't found any kind of form, even though he started the season strong, beat Alcaraz in the final. Although Alcaraz was injured in that final, but st- started the season off strong. But since then, it's really not been there. Uh, not been there for Cam, unfortunately. So uh, I reckon Fritz will get yeah. through that. But even if he does, he, he has potentially Kachanov, who I, I'm quite, I'd i be quite interested in the Kachanov-Fritz quarterfinal. Um, and then yeah. also Schwartzman is on that side. There's a lot of great players. I mean, Draper Demonor is a really interesting first yeah. round. There's a lot of players um, who are uh, who are in the draw. And uh, yeah, as for Rune and Tispas, uh, yeah, I, I would not necessarily bet on them at all. I, I can easily imagine... it's. It, very a really high level performance from pretty much anybody in those in those draws and then that is, is not i mean they could beat since boss for real with a really, really good performance because i just don't think that they have right now and i just don't think they're in that right right now where they're just like the top 10 players that they're list to be where they're just could be performing consistently week in week out and it's just not where they're at at the moment i think it's a good opportunity for both of them to prove themselves and to secure their spots in the race particularly runa who's a look who's uh spawned this is a little more fragile uh but i still think that it's uh it's gonna be tough for them to defend i was a little bit more encouraged by Tsitsipas in shanghai to be honest who came across a 
ridiculous Kumbair who has a good game to play against Sitzboss. It was seven five in the third set. I felt like Sitzboss played a little mm -hmm. bit better, but it's not mm -hmm. quite enough for me to bet on him and in, uh, in Antwerp. So uh, so we'll see. But yeah, there's uh, there's some interesting players uh, players playing. It could be Team Sitzboss in the quarterfinals of Antwerp if Team wins a few matches. Um, Arthur mm -hmm. Feast is a name in here. So uh, there should be some interesting players. Jan Lenard Struff was playing really well up until he got injured just before Wimbledon. So uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But that's kind, of the, it's kind of the upcoming on the men's side. Yeah, and then looking forward to the WTA and what's coming up. So things are a little bit more wrapped up from the WTA side. They fit their masters right after the US Open. So um, a little bit of a different schedule than the ATP. We played our last 500 tournament last week. So now we've just got a couple 250s left. Romania, Tunisia, and one more in China. Um, so don't expect to see the bigger names competing in these tournaments. Again, also there is a limit on the WTA side as to how many uh, 250 tournaments these top 10 players can participate in throughout the year, uh, which... I think it's a stupid rule, but, you know, is what it is. So uh, most of them will be taking a break. The only name there that's an exception really is Jabor that's playing in her home tournament in Tunisia in doubles. I'm not even sure if she's going to end up playing singles. Um, but a couple of the kind of, you know, outside the top 10 names that are interesting, we've got Hadid Maya, who's had an on-again, off-again season, um, but nonetheless still a great player, a great battler. Wang is competing, Fernandez, Ju, Lynette, those, um, those names will all be a part of the draw in China. Then we have Paolini, who had a good run in the previous tournament. I think she's a name to watch out for in 2024. She's a lot of fun to watch, high-level, high-energy player. We've got Fret, Fretch, uh, Mertens, Trevisan, and Monastir, who are also in Tunisia. And then a couple... Again, kind of outside of the normal names we'd be used to, but Makarova, Minin, Parks, Wickmeyer, and then the bigger seed in Kastea, who are all in that Transylvania Open in Romania. Kastea, because she's obviously a Romanian player, so we she would want to play her home tournament, and that'll kind of round up the season for uh, the kind of top WTA players. So not too much to play for in this sense, apart from players maybe jousting for a top 20 finish or top 30 finish um or just you know wanting to pick up a tour level title towards the end of the season when some of the bigger names might not be competing so leaves the door open for uh some new names to to have an opportunity and yeah it would be cool if uh if fernandez could back up a good week and have another you know title this week or if we could see somebody um you know like castella assert her dominance and and get a title in her home country so couple interesting events to pay attention to but ultimately compared to the ATP it's not quite as exciting in terms of that end of year um, roundup before the finals yeah totally I mean these aren't the names that you would that you would usually be seeing uh, even play uh, some of the 250s I think a lot of players are resting up and taking this as a little bit of a rest period obviously Khaled Maya is a name that can perform uh, is a player that can perform very well had a good run at the French Open and she can win some good matches or stay uh, like you said Jabor might be on but uh, yeah these aren't really the names you uh, you'd be expecting but yeah there's some interesting stories anyway and uh, it's kind of what's going on and there's a lot of play on the ATP side that 
um, for anybody who wants like main tour matches from either side, that that will be uh, that will be really interesting with a lot of top top players playing. Like I said, Hercatch isn't even seated in Tokyo, which is crazy. And um, but yeah, on WTA side, a few two fifties. Um, so anytime tennis is going on, it's good to have. And um, yeah, and then we can go on to the culture segment um, where we talk about different issues going on in tennis and stuff that uh, we think is important to talk about. Uh, ways to either maybe improve the sport or grow it or just talk about things interesting going on uh, week in, week out. But uh, yeah, this week, a big conversation on the tennis balls <laughs> that the players are using, which isn't really a conversation you want to be seeing have had. Like you, you don't you want don't want that to be a conversation. There's enough to focus on outside of the actual individual balls that players are using. But uh, a lot of players are saying not only are they uncomfortable or uh, impossible to uh to control at times th throughout tournaments throughout the whole year but they're saying that they might even cause injuries that a lot of the players who are mm -hmm. injured it might be because the ball is pablo carreno busta who came back this week or i think last week he was saying you know what this might be why i got injured is because of these balls he was out mm -hmm. for eight or nine months so um mm -hmm. that's uh that's a tough issue what, what do you think about the balls kind of issue yeah it's certainly an interesting one and it cropped up White, right at the very beginning of this year at the Australian Open with question marks even from high-level players like Nadal over, um, you know, what that the ball felt different from previous years despite being a, a Dunlop ball as it had been yeah. for many years. And uh, players bringing this up um, post-COVID in particular and it being kind of a question mark, you know, if anybody was playing tennis during COVID, you knew it was nigh impossible to get your hands on new tennis balls the supply chain for tennis balls was severely impacted for whatever reason and if that's translated into how the balls are being manufactured at all um or the types of balls that we're playing with but you know it's it's names like a medvedev and but not just the big names smaller names as well outside the top 100 who have been concerned by the fact that the balls are changing each week from tournament to tournament and it's extremely difficult for uh, the ATP, the WTA, the ITF uh, to work together to try to have a standardized ball for each surface. And of course, that's down to the fact that each of these tournaments have their own relationships and marketing rights and branding rights with manufacturers. And it's kind of hard to, um, we, we don't, governance isn't set up in tennis in the way that they have the right to go to um, any of the slams or even any of the masters or any tournament and, and mandate what type of ball they're going to use. And I think ultimately it's a question that the governing bodies are going to need to start listening to, because it'd be one thing if it was just one or two players who are complaining, but there's players across both the WTA, the ATP, and then across all levels, not just top players, but levels outside of the top hundred and it's not just complaints of like, oh, these balls are difficult to get used to. It's complaints about injuries. And that's super concerning because ultimately our players are the product. And if your product is getting hurt because of the way that your governments are structured or organized, then there's serious question marks as to, you know, how much work are they doing that's in favor of the players and taking care of them at the end of the day? So I thought um, Gil Gross's suggestion here was a very clever one. As many of you know, a player, for example, will use a racket that's branded a certain type of way, right? So it'll look like, I don't know, a Djokovic's racket looks like and is painted like a head speed pro, but it is in fact not a head speed pro. It's something different. 
So is there an opportunity for tennis governing bodies to work together and mandate, hey, these are the balls we use for hardcore, grass, and clay? And then the tournaments themselves can brand or paint the balls whatever which way they like so that they can continue to have the sponsorships and rights deals that they've had before that perhaps they don't lose out on money or cause you know branding headaches that happen with these types of changes and can we do that in such a way so that you know the average person watching tennis isn't going to know what type of ball it is it's impossible to know from watching it's only possible to know from playing so I thought that that was a very clever solution and is probably the only solution at this point because there's no way that there's going to be an agreed consensus as to, um, you know, one brand having the rights across all of these tournaments. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but even then, logistically, that's that's a difficult uh, outcome or result to come to because <laughs> whose ball is it going to be? What type of ball is it going to be? And we don't have you know, one governing body for all of tennis, it's split up between ATP, WTA and ITF. And so how could they even come together and have consensus on what this should be? And unfortunately, I don't see there being a satisfying outcome to this, at least not next year. It's going to take some time to work on it. But I very much hope that they take the question seriously and start to put their heads together and come up with a solution. Because at the end of the day, you don't want your product getting injured over the types of tennis yeah. balls you're using. It's ridiculous. Yes, that's totally true. I think, um, well, first of all, shout out, shout out to Bill Gross. Um, another uh, great guy. I mean, I'm sure everybody who watches uh, Quality Shot Tennis knows of Bill, yeah. great commentator on um, across all platforms and on the YouTube, um, on YouTube. But uh, yeah, that's a great suggestion. I think if the uh, issue is for different kind of brands and that they want their specific ball, uh, um, to be listed on the balls, then yeah, it can just be kind of by name across the different tournaments. Um, but yeah, I think another issue comes into play uh, in which I, I've, I've heard different players uh, saying that they like different balls. And that means that maybe there can't just be one kind of agreed upon tennis ball throughout yeah. the whole season, which is another kind of issue that needs to be taken care of. So that's, uh, it's, it's just almost impossible to know. The biggest thing that I would hope for is like you said, that it it's taken seriously because at heart it could be seen as a pretty trivial issue. But if players like Daniil Medvedev are complaining throughout the whole Australian Open run that the balls are ridiculous and are going to cause injuries and that balls throughout these kind of tournaments are going to uh, make players have to be out for seven, eight months like Karina Busta has been this year. It's an issue that needs to be taken seriously. And we need to look at why certain balls are causing these injuries, if they're heavier and how we can avoid that while also creating a good matches in the, in the meanwhile. So that's something that I think, uh, there needs to be a big weight on as to how uh, which balls will cause the least injuries and how to make that uh, happen uh, in the most um, kind of uh, logistical kind of way to in the most realistic kind of way. And it should happen quickly because I've been seeing more complaints about the balls this year than ever and more complaints about the balls yeah. this week than ever. It's been a, on yeah. so many players have been talking about it. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I think the other caveat to it is that they go, you know, from tournament to tournament, week to week, and they're playing with different balls each week. Like, there at least has to be a way to say, like, you know, uh, from tournament to tournament, 
if it's the US swing or the Asian swing or the Australian swing, like at least try to use the same ball in each of those yeah. like swings and try to get those tournaments in those locations to come to a consensus or an agreement so that players aren't changing balls each week. Because I think that's probably what's most detrimental is, you know, going one week on playing with a heavy ball that fluffs up a lot to the next week playing with a lighter ball. I think players could probably get used to it if at least, you know, there's there's three to four tournaments back to back with one type of ball before they need to readjust again. And I think, you know, it's something that, uh, as you said, people might think it's a trivial issue, but at that most elite level, um, things like your balls and your strings can be the difference between winning or not winning a tournament. And it can also be the difference between getting injured and staying healthy season long. And as you said, there's never been more complaints than there have been at them at this year around the tennis ball. So that in itself should raise question marks over, you know, it, it, are there changes in manufacturing? Like what on earth is going on with that? Is the quality of the ball going down? And then can we do a little bit more research and digging into, okay, what are the balls that are most complained about and what is it about them that players don't like? And can that be, you know, I'm sure it won't be transparent to the public, but it almost seems like the players have no transparency there either. And it, that seems to be the case in general. If it's not transparent to the public, the players don't seem to know anything either, which in <laughs> itself is yeah. an issue with this governance. And so, um, yeah, I mean, definitely a concern and you just never want to see uh, equipment being the reason why somebody, you know, misses out on a season and in competitive sports where your career could be pretty short at the end of the day, missing seven or eight months could, you know, be the difference of millions of dollars, your ranking points, your life and um, how, how you play the sport in itself. So um, they really do need to pay attention. And I think uh, a lot of people will be paying attention as to what they're going to do about it and if they are going to do anything about it. So yeah. you'll have to okay. keep around how that develops. Yeah, very well said. I think uh, I don't have anything to add to that. Just I hope that people keep paying attention to that kind of question because the questions keep popping up and the more that we can listen to the players, I think everybody is going to be happier. And it's not just one player talking about it. It's no. countless players every single week talking about it. So something needs there. There should be uh, the tour should listen and try to figure out exactly how to uh, stop that from being being an issue because that is not a um, something that you want to be a big factor, uh, like you said, as to why certain matches happen a certain way or why a player thinks that a certain match in a match ended up going one way rather than another. That's not something that we want. Yeah, yeah, and then also on the culture conversation, um, just yesterday, Kazakina released a couple statements either from a press conference or on her socials about the challenges of the tennis tour. And she's a name that, um, if you don't know, she has a really great YouTube channel. She likes to vlog. She shares a lot about her life. And she was basically just calling out how the organization, in, in particular the WTA and the craziness of the tennis tour and packing your bags every week, new beds every week, uh, new countries every week, and just how exhausted she is and um, equating that to a little bit of a lack of uh, motivation and just kind of, I guess, love of the sport. And I think it's, um, she's not alone in terms of players feeling that way. And of course, you know, you're, you're played to 
you're paid to play professional tennis at a high level. And some people's answer is like, well, tough. If you don't want to do it, don't play tennis. But I do think that, you know, the game is only going to become more and more global. And it already is one of the most global sports with one of the craziest schedules. I can't think of any sport that has an equatable schedule and travels as much as they do. I mean, even think about Formula One, which is a sport that travels from country to country every week. They don't race every weekend. They they get a summer break. Um, they have, you know, just the scheduling makes a lot more sense. And even then, it's still crazy. And I think, you know, this is the direct outcome or result, in my opinion, of the WTA scheduling post the US Open being absolutely absurd. I mean, again, we talked about it last week. You have a, a, a Masters in Mexico, then you're sending them all to China. And now they're coming back to Mexico. And it just makes no sense. And ultimately, it's not fair on the players and as we said, even with the balls, the players are the product. And if the product can't show up and play their best tennis week in, week out, that's damaging for the sport and it's not fun for the fans. And so I do think the tennis tour on both the WTA and ATP side need to do a better job of looking after the longevity of these players. I mean, players nowadays could play until they're nearly 40 years old. So do we have to pack every single week with these, you know, insane tournaments? Can we add more spacing between the slams? Like, what can we do to help people take care of themselves and ensure that the highest level of tennis is played whenever these tournaments are on? And, um, yeah, I, I sympathize deeply with what she said because I feel like if I was in that position, I would just be like, I just want to sleep in my bed and I want my mom to cook <laughs> me some food and, like, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. I think um, I mean in what in one case in in on one side on one hand you could say that these are players that are this is their job to play. Uh, this is the kind of challenges that come with such an incredible job to be able to play in front of so many fans week in week out. But yeah, then the other side is that it's uh, it's uh, it's an absurd scheduling issue and i don't know if we can have it like f1 where there's a giant break although that's that works great for f1 but like you said there's so many tournaments crammed back to back so many parts of the schedule especially wta which it seems like can quickly be improved upon with a few changes in the schedule so hopefully that that that's looked upon and like you said she's not alone i mean muguruza also uh, this yeah. week was like, I don't have any plans on coming back to the sport. I don't have any, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm taking a break is what she said. And I think uh, that that's something we have to listen to. Um, also uh, Amanda Nisimova is another player, promising young player mm -hmm. who just wasn't, hasn't been playing. So, I mean, yeah, it's, you, you want, you want the players to feel like they're um, like you said, it is a question of the balls. If the players are talk, uh, having some kind of um, what would you say? Grievances. That's something the tours need to listen to and find a way to work around. And you can't always work around everything, but the tours ought to really try hard to uh, fix this kind of scheduling issue. So more players want to play. And I think it is worthy to note that even though it is an incredible job, it is a very tough, job for the players to be away from their families at so many points i remember Djokovic after the amazing cincinnati final against alcaraz uh said that um 
he's sad a lot of the time because he can't be with his family. He has to be away from his family. He's always traveling. Uh, there's never a constant. The only constant is in practicing very simple sport every day, every week. It seems like such a story. So, um, mandatory events. So, the more that uh, we can listen to the hard rally to make it work best for the players, I think the better. So, um, and I think that it is to look at the scheduling more than anything. I mean, Kazakhstan is always a very genuine kind of person, and she, she'll, uh, she'll say what's on her mind, and I'm glad that she did. And, uh, with any player, I'm glad that they're saying what's on their mind. We ought to listen to them, I think, a lot of the time and try to figure out the best way to make it good for them. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's also like these are comments coming from top players, right? Like players that can, you know, Djokovic can rent a very nice house near the U.S. Open and have his family and they can stay there. Or Kazakina can travel with her girlfriend and her team and stay in a decent hotel. Like, when you know the conversation broadens to players even outside of the top 50 not even outside of the top 100 the financial difference is huge and then you yeah you think about outside of the top 100 you probably can't afford to travel with a coach the whole time you certainly can't afford to bring you know extra members of your family or support systems and if you're a player that's not born in Europe or the US where a number of the you know uh, tours go to for significant months uh periods of the year where you know oh okay we have the u.s tour i'm going to be able to go and see some family i'm going to have some time at home i'm going to be able to sleep in my bed or uh you know uh, players in europe where we have the french open and wimbledon there's going to be an opportunity to go home there you have players from australia who from the french open to now will not be able to go home because you can't make a quick stop to australia and go home and so I think it's trying to be mindful of the fact, again, that it's a global sport. You're trying to grow the sport in other countries like Af uh, and continents like Africa and Asia. And so this question, again, is going to continue to rise over the fact that these are, these are uh, locations where players can't go home for long periods of time. And so, um, you know, that, that takes a toll on their mental well-being. And ultimately, we know nowadays how much your mental well-being impacts your ability to play well as well. And so trying to find little breaks in schedule or means in which we're able to group tournaments uh, more effectively in certain locations to allow for players to have time off and have time to go home, especially crafting a much more significant offseason, in my opinion, would make a huge difference if you knew like, hey, I'm really going to have a solid three, four months off here and I, I get that time at home throughout the year. That, that makes a huge difference. And so it's not just uh, the comments from the top players, but I think that's also considering those who are ranked a little lower, um, who don't have the means to to have a support system with them throughout the year as well. Yeah, yeah well said. I think uh, we ought to just listen more to the players. I don't have anything else to, uh, to kind of add on to that. So uh, we can kind of finish off the uh, podcast. Thank you guys for joining in for Tennis 360. I've been Anthony Hirsch. And I'm Eliza Westgate. Thank you guys for watching. Don't forget to like the video and subscribe to Quality Shot Tennis. We'll have more podcasts, more streams coming your way. And uh, I'll see you guys at the next one. See you guys later. Bye, guys.